Thanks for listening to the Distribution Podcast. If you like this content, you may also enjoy the webinar I hosted featuring previous podcast guests, Heather Furstrom-Border and Jennifer Stevens, co-founders and managing partners at Alliance Global Advisors. You can now access highlights from the conversation on junipersquare.com forward slash GP resilience, all one word. You will learn about the best practices GPs can use to differentiate themselves from the competition and continue to build meaningful relationships with current and prospective investors. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Sean Burton, CEO of CityView, a vertically integrated real estate investment and development firm focused on workforce and attainable housing in the Western U.S., Sean joined CityView in 2003, first as the firm's chief operating officer, and then as president from 2008 through 2015. Now as CEO, Sean is focused on the strategic direction and day-to-day operations of the company. In our conversation, we talk about demographic shifts and the important roles that cities play in our society, the difference between headlines and reality, Specifically, what City View is seeing on the ground in markets like Los Angeles and San Francisco, which have been hit hard by the pandemic, and how City View is navigating uncertainty around an impending recession. I enjoyed my conversation with Sean, and I hope you will as well. Let's get into it. Sean, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you start by introducing yourself and City View to our listeners? Sure. I'm Sean Burton. I am the chairman and CEO of CityView. CityView is a multifamily operator, developer, and investor based in Los Angeles, and we're a sharpshooter. So all we do is multifamily, and all we do is the western half uh, of the country. We've been around since 2003 and very active on both the development front, but also value add and core and core plus. So tell us a little bit about your journey, you know, to City View. What did you do? How did you get into the commercial real estate industry? Give us your background so we have that context as we move through the conversation today. Sure. So I was a I went to law school and I was a lawyer at a big firm and worked in real estate and capital markets in New York and San Francisco and LA. But early in my career I had worked in politics and worked with cities and and, you know, I was really missing kind of the tangible nature of real estate. I was missing, you know, helping making an impact. And I really liked investing. So in 2003, I left my job and co-founded CityView. And the thesis at the time was there was going to be a reemergence of cities. You know, the dominant thinking for housing, at least in California, in kind of the 90s was you know, go buy land off the next freeway off-ramp. And if you build it, they will come. And that's kind of led to our suburbanization and our sprawl. We had a thesis that there was going to be a return to cities. And there was going to be a generation of people who wanted to live closer to the action, closer to jobs, that maybe didn't want to get in the car, wanted to take public transit. And so we founded the firm based on that concept that would, then they called it infill housing. That that term has fallen out of out of vogue now, but the idea was, you know, how can you build in cities? The sites are more complicated. You have to work more with communities uh, and design and development. And so that was the thought process. And and you know, we started with you know three of us uh, crammed into someone else's offices in, in Santa Monica in in the fall of two thousand three. So before I get into a little bit more on City View, out of curiosity, why has urban infill fallen out of favor? That's a term that I frequently use. So maybe you can help me uh, not not be on the wrong side of the, the the trade here. It's a good question. People just really stopped using it. You've heard different names, and then frankly, even urban has fallen out of favor to some degree. Often, you know, when pe- when people used to talk about urban, it, it meant that you know, kind of not suburban. Now, when people talk about urban, it often means kind of central business districts and high rises. And, you know, people know the challenges that San Francisco's faced and downtown LA and others. So, you know, you're hearing people talk about metropolitan or, you know, kind of other, uh, you know, other names for, you know, meaning the same thing. Fascinating. Well, I've learned something new already and we're five minutes in. So you mentioned a, you, mo- you mentioned a focus on cities when you get when you got started and you also mentioned that you're a specialist investment manager. So first of all, 
What does it mean to be a specialist investment manager or sharpshooter, if you will? And then the follow-up question to that is, you know, how has your thesis on cities evolved over the last decade, you know, two decades now since you started the firm, if at all? Sure, sure. So being a sharpshooter means, you know, we don't focus on everything within kind of real estate, right? There's there's broad-based managers out there who do, you know, industrial and multifamily and office and retail and hotels and self-storage. And, you know, there's lots of different, you know, kind of different categories. We got in the business to do housing. That was very much our thesis at the, at the, at the time and has remained our thesis since. And so we've really stuck to our knitting now. And that, now, by the way, that doesn't mean that that our projects often don't have a creative office component or a retail component. You know, if you build in cities, often on the ground floor, it makes sense to do some sort of community serving retail. So we definitely do that, but everything we do is housing focused. And, you know, we've had lots of opportunities to, to go into other asset classes over the years. People have brought us deals, capital partners have brought us opportunities, but you know, we really like being specialists at what we do. Now, I will, t- I will say when we first started, we, we were really a joint venture partner. We were capital. We would raise commingled funds and invest with builders and developers. And it was really during the kind of financial crisis in 2008, 9, and 10 that we had a lot of projects get in trouble. We had to take them back. We had, you know, we had developer partners that went bankrupt or lost their, lost their focus. So we made a decision at that point that we just needed to be closer to the real estate and that we would invest in building out our platform be fully vertically integrated. So, you know, where we probably had 12 or 15 people in 2010, we have 150 today. We do all of our own development. We do all of our own construction management. If it's a value add project, we will often do, you know, most, if not all of the uh, construction work and general contracting work within a value add project. And then we now property manage all of our own projects as well. And I will say that, that, you know, that I think gives us a competitive advantage where, you know, we can control costs better. We can execute more quickly. We have more certainty. You have better information, better numbers when you're underwriting and doing due diligence. So that was a very purposeful decision that we made. We didn't make it lightly and it's been a significant investment, but I think that's in many ways what's attributed to our kind of continued success in the, in the business. I've noticed a lot of firms that are vertically integrated have success, especially around, you know, manage, you know, doing the property management and then ultimately branch out and take on third party business. Have you gone in that direction or are you only managing for your own assets and for city views projects? You know, we've, we've debated that quite a bit, you know, with the other partners here at city view, but we've continued to, to focus just on projects that we're investing our own capital in with, with other capital partners. Uh, so we've made a decision not to do third-party business. You know, there's only so much kind of time and resources that that you have, and we want to make sure that the projects that where people are entrusting us with their capital and we're you know building or or buying and rehabbing for them that that we can be as focused as possible. So you know, for the, at least for the time being, we're going to continue to focus on on projects in which we invest in and that we you know we're in the ownership uh, in the ownership group. So you mentioned cities as a big part of your thesis. And over the last two decades, there's been massive demographic shifts in this country. What have you seen from, you know, what have you seen play out against the thesis of people are going to return to cities? And how has that impacted the markets that you're investing in or active in at CityView? Yeah, it's been, it's been a really interesting uh, two decades. I can't believe it's been that long, but <laughs> but it has. And, you know, I would say at first what we really saw in the kind of 2000s was just this return to cities. You, a lot of, you saw a lot of people moving back from the suburbs. You saw cities willing to get more dense around, especially particularly around transit. And we saw a great inflow. And then what I would say is what you, you, know, you really saw during COVID was you know, people move out of cities. But what was interesting, we looked at a study that was done by the Postal Service in San Francisco, about San Francisco, which obviously had a massive exodus during uh, during COVID, and something like eighty five percent or so of the people who left San Francisco, you know, they didn't move to Boise, they didn't move to Orlando, they didn't move to Austin. They actually stayed within a contiguous county in the Bay Area, because you know what what, what people forget sometimes is that 
Now, when you move, I mean, you're leaving your friends, you're leaving your family, you're leaving your community, even if you can work remotely. So we did see kind of more of a push to inner ring suburbs or what we call premier suburbs. And obviously, central business districts have taken a real hit. You know, downtown LA is in a you know, tough, tough place right now. You're seeing major owners, you know, give buildings back to the bank. There's challenges around homelessness. There's challenges around crime. San Francisco, everybody knows the stories of what's happening there. Um, and other major cities across the country have faced similar, similar issues. And I will say that, that at City View, we've always worked to keep pricing more affordable of our units for our renters. So we've actually never invested or built a high-rise building in a central business, business district. And that's by design because we, we, you know, we think those are they're risky, they're expensive, you have to charge significantly higher rent in order to hit your returns. And our thesis has always been to, to keep our kind of housing more affordable. So you take LA where we've done, I don't know, four dozen projects or so since we started, and we've never done a deal in downtown LA. Now we've we built 300 units in the arts, dist- arts district and converted a warehouse in LA. We you know, build in Koreatown near USC and Silver Lake and Echo Park. So all the areas around it playing off the, the jobs core that you had there, but we stayed away from high rise and the kind of expensive development and expensive rents in those types of projects. So we'll come back to LA in a moment because I think that's a topic unto itself given what's happening. But as you look across, what are the other markets that you're in today? Sure. So, um, you know, there, there's some common themes with our markets, which I'll come back to. But the markets that we have, we're active in, where we either have deals we're currently doing, or either building or buying, or projects that we own today, or more projects that we've recently been in, or maybe we've sold an asset, is coastal California. So, kind of San Diego, Orange County, Los Angeles County. We are a very heavy Silicon Valley and East Bay. We're in Pacific Northwest, Portland and Seattle, and then over to Denver and Boulder, which is a market that we were very active in and really like, then down through kind of Salt Lake, Phoenix into Texas, Dallas and Austin. So those are all the kind of city view target markets. They're all markets, again, that we've, we've built or bought in throughout our history. And, and they all share a couple of common characteristics, although they're obviously they're different markets. One is, is they're very strong on the demand front. When you look at those markets and you look not just in the past 10 years, but in, in the kind of projections for the next you know, five to seven years, they all grow jobs much faster than the rest of the country. They grow you know, people faster than the rest of the country. The demographics are, are, are gaining across the board and you have you know, kind of higher incomes and pretty significant rent growth when you kind of look across those those markets. Now, for most of those markets, what you'll see is also a real kind of lack of supply and high barriers to entry. It's very difficult to very difficult to to build in those in most of those markets. And that leads obviously to significant rent growth. And it frankly, unfortunately leads to housing unaffordability, um, which is one of the reasons in every jurisdiction we're in, we're we're pushing elected officials to to you know allow more housing so that you can keep rents at a reasonable reasonable level. So that's really been our core thesis. Now look at you know there's submarkets. I mean there's you know there's pockets in LA County that have seen people leave and but then there's you know pockets where you know, like the west side of Los Angeles we've seen a lot of people you know continue to want to be there. So it's very much a submarket by submarket analysis with it within each broader market but those core fundamentals really help guide and drive us. What have you found is most surprising about the markets that you're in? And, you know, it could be a, let me rephrase the question. What is one thing that has surprised you the most about a market that you're in that you didn't expect before you entered that market? You know, I think it's, I think broadly those markets are just very resilient and they often don't match the kind of national narrative. You know, this narrative that, again, we've been hearing this again and again, and it's, it's, sometimes pushed by, you know, elected officials for their own, for their own use or the media, like that everybody's leaving California. I mean, the reason that you have such sky high rents in California is not because everybody's leaving. It's because, you know, there's actually a lot of people coming here. A lot of millennials come here because that's who want to start their career. That's where the opportunities are. And if you read the national media, you would think that the state is hollowing out 
and and there's no one left when you know when you actually see you know our you know our portfolios north of 95% occupied across the board because there's so many people that need need housing here you know go to restaurants go to you know sit, sit in traffic uh, you'll see that people are not you know not leaving the state despite what the kind of national media accounts that everybody's moving to to Texas or Florida why have you not expanded further east than Texas? You know, it's a, it's a, another interesting debate we've had. We've had lots of opportunities to jump the Mississippi, as they say, and and to look, you know, particularly at you know markets in the eastern seaboard that maybe share some of the supply demand fundamentals we've talked about. We haven't made that decision to, to jump because there's been so much opportunity in the western states. You know, we were just talking about California. I mean, California is the fourth largest economy in the world, right? I mean, it's bigger than in Germany. That's pretty staggering when you think about it in terms of, of opportunity. So, you know, our business is also a very hands-on business, you know, so not just on the value add front, but obviously when you're developing, you really have to have local knowledge, local relationships, understand the communities to into which you're going. And that's just frankly harder to do if you're, you know, in 25 markets you know, some of which are 2,500 miles away, it's a lot easier to do when, you know, you can get there in two hours. You know, we like to, to make a joke, you know, City View doesn't have a corporate jet, but we manage by Southwest Airlines. You know, anything we can get to within two hours on Southwest Airlines is a, is a good market for us. I like that. So talking about LA a little bit, City View is named by the LA Business Journal, I believe, as one of the most active multifamily developers in Los Angeles in the last decade. Yet LA is having some kind of structural challenges or going through some structural challenges. Talk us through what's actually happening on the ground. Help us kind of disambiguate those national headlines or the headlines that are designed to get clicks from what you're actually seeing on the ground in your portfolio. Yeah. So, so what I would say is, is a couple of things. One is you still see good job growth in Los Angeles and you see a real diverse economy which is different than how it used to be 20 and 30 years ago. Like, you know, when it was kind of heavily aerospace driven, you obviously have entertainment, which everybody knows, but you also have technology, you have manufacturing, you have trade and tourism, which is a huge business. You know, in 2019, before the pandemic, we had 50 million people come to come to LA for, for tourist reasons. It's LA County. Healthcare is a huge driver of the economy here. So it's a very diverse economy. And, it's you know it's vibrant in terms of restaurants and culture and nightlife. It's incredibly diverse. So there's a, a ton of benefits to to Los Angeles. And until a couple of months ago, we used to have sun every day. It's coming back now, but but the weather is a is a huge benefit as well. But look, we we do have real challenges. It's it's very difficult to get projects approved in Los Angeles. That's you know I do think we have a new mayor who's very focused on this and you know, Karen Bass and she sees the need for housing and she's really pushing things to get more housing built. The number one way that we're going to deal with the lack of affordability of housing here, which by the way is the number one reason why why businesses leave. It's not taxation or regulation or other things. When you actually look at the polls, it's because their employees can't afford to live here. You know, I think that that you know the the number one way to solve that is to build more housing. It is simply a supply and demand issue, and we haven't built enough. Recently, the the state and the Southern California Association of Governments did an analysis of how many housing units we need to build between now and 2030 in the city of LA in order just to keep kind of equilibrium, not even to really address um, some of the unaffordability issues that we have. And the number that they determined is 57,000 housing units per year is what we need to build. Now, back in 2019, when you know money was falling off trees and interest rates were zero, we were delivering 15 to 20,000 units per year. So we need to basically triple what we did during the best economy, and that's going to you know take a fundamentally kind of different approach. If we're going to do it, you know, we need more buy right housing. We need more housing near transit. We're going to need more density. We're going to need quicker approvals. We're going to need a a city that's supportive of new housing in terms of permitting and 
planning and you know you need dwp to get out there and and you know you know connect you sooner than they have been so it's going to really take a kind of all hands on deck effort i think there's a recognition with elected officials that we need more housing but there's sometimes a disconnect with local communities who will maybe fight every project because they're concerned about traffic it's a legitimate concern but we really need to find ways to work together to kind of address these larger issues otherwise we're not even going to come close to those numbers and and LA is going to be, you know, become even more unaffordable than it is today. A lot of a lot of the headlines recently have been about Measure ULA, which is the transfer tax, which is ostensibly a deterrent from you know from investing in in LA, or m- maybe that's not its intention, but it's serving as such in the real estate community. How are you navigating that on the ground, and how is that impacting the market fundamentals and affordability? I think ULA, I'm glad you brought it up. I think ULA is a real challenge. I think the the intent behind ULA, I understand, right? That there's a homeless crisis and, and you know, people who are busy go into the ballot box and they see a ballot initiative that it says, look, let's, you know, let, let's tax mansions that sell and let's give them money to build more homeless housing, right? And so on its face, a lot of people say, hey, that makes a lot of sense. I think what what and I, and I think it was a little bit dishonest the way it was was marketed and sold. But it's not just a mansion tax; it's a it's the highest transfer tax in the country on any real estate. So, which is a you know when you already have incredibly expensive land and you know materials are up forty percent since COVID started. You know, building materials and labor costs have been going up five to ten percent per year. It's already very, very difficult to build. And when you add another five and a half percent gross tax, it makes most, if not all, projects unaffordable. I think you've you've seen almost a complete cessation of any sort of new building of housing in Los Angeles since ULA. And I don't think that was the intent of the of the people who put it on the ballot, but that's the unintended consequence. And it's gonna be up to our elected officials working with the business community, the real estate community, labor, and the housing advocates to figure out some sort of compromise solution so that we can we can continue to build in LA city. Uh, it's a real issue and and we you know we need to take it very very seriously. Since ULA came in to law, how has it impacted your kind of construction starts or acquisition strategy in LA? Has have you also noticed a significant slowdown in you know your ability to pe- make projects pencil. So so absolutely you know as you mentioned earlier you know we've you know, according to the business journal we've been the the largest multifamily developer um, for the last decade in LA County and there's not a single deal new deal now that we're underwriting in LA City to build because we can't make the numbers work I mean I, I I desperately wish we could this is my home I base my company here my Children went to school here. I raised my family here. I mean, we're very committed to Los Angeles, but but you just can't make the the economics work. So I, you know, we desperately hope there's a change. You know, we're we're working with City Hall. We're working at the state level on potential state legislation to see if there's some way we can can modify ULA to to make it possible to build housing again in LA City. Well, we'll be uh, we'll be watching that space as well. Before we transition into some of the fundamentals of the other markets that you're in, want to wrap up on City View. So you mentioned you started it with a few partners. Who are your who are your partners in the business, and how many you know how big is the company today from an employee perspective as well as a assets under management and units perspective? Yeah. So yeah, there were basically kind of three of us who started it in 2003. And now, and we had, and, and then, yeah, we added a couple of employees. There were maybe five people then. Today we have 150. So obviously we've grown, you know, we've grown quite a bit. And that's on the investment management side, but it's also really on that vertical integration side that I mentioned earlier, you know, building out the development team and kind of 2011, 12, and 13, and then construction management and then property management. That's really what's, you know, kind of led to, you know, led to the firm that we have today. And I think it's, you know, one of the things that, that does make us unique. I mean, often you have, you have firms that are, you know, that raise funds or other capital and are limited partners and they, and they joint venture with builders and developers. And then you have builders and developers who 
you know, don't have their own capital, they go out to seek that through other relationships. We really do both. So we, you know, we've raised a series of institutional commingled funds over our 20 year history with, you know, major kind of U.S. public pension systems and insurance companies and private pensions. And then we also, you know, we also have large joint venture relationships and platform relationships that we've been fortunate enough to, to put together and then continue to kind of repeat and do deals again and again. And, but then we also have the ability to execute ourselves. You know, we don't need any kind of development partners. So it's, it really is a, you know, it's a hybrid model. It's, we think, you know, a real sustainable competitive advantage for us. It's very difficult to replicate this model. It took us a lot of years. By the way, we made plenty of mistakes over that time. And, and we've tried to learn from those and continue to, to improve and be better. But, you know, I do think it's, you know, it is more of a unique model and, and really is a, a benefit and allowed us to, to have the success we've been able to have today. What uh and, and just to help us ballpark, you know, size and scale in terms of either AUM or kind of units that you own or that are under development in your pipeline, what are some of the, the broad numbers? Yeah, so you know, we have north of fifty projects today that we own and manage throughout all those cities that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. We have and about 1,500 units uh, in construction today across a number of projects. We're starting to deliver as soon as in the next couple of weeks of those. And then we have another probably two, 2,500 units in some sort of entitlement or approval process. So we're very, very active in that sense. I will say over the last 12 months, it's been very challenging to do new deals with interest rates basically tripling for real estate projects. It's you know, interest now on a development deal can can cost almost as much as the land over the course of, of the project. And now usually the way you would handle that is land prices would come down, which I have somewhat anywhere from 10% to 30%. But in multifamily, land is not a huge percentage of the pro forma, unlike industrial or some other sector. So you really either have to see costs come down, which they've moderated a lot, but they haven't really come down yet. Or you have to see rents go up significantly and facing kind of a recession and some layoffs in the economy, you're not seeing that. So it's been difficult to, to do new development deals. That's also going to create a big opportunity going forward because as these, these different markets recover, there's going to be an even greater need for housing and there's going to have been very little new supply built in the next couple of years. So for, for those who can, um, and we're focused on this, for those who can tie up land, who can take can entitle land, find a higher and better use for a parking lot or an empty office building. For people who can do that and have kind of shovel-ready deals to go in the next 12, 18, 24 months, it's, you know, we think it's going to be a real opportunity. And we've been very focused on that. We've done a lot of that ac- across City View's history. And, you know, we really think that, you know, we're going to be in possession of what we call this kind of golden pipeline of shovel-ready deals in these you know, very dynamic supply constrained markets with no new competition. And so we're, we're kind of excited about the future from that perspective. When you look at your portfolio across the West Coast and then other regions, the West Coast being California, Oregon, Washington, and then there's everything else, you know, Arizona, Nevada, Texas, et cetera, uh, Utah. How do those markets compare to each other from a fundamentals perspective when you start to look at, you know, per unit, you know, occupancy rates or, you know, development cost perspectives? Like what are some of the differences that you, regional differences that you've noticed? Yeah, so, so I would say uh, Southern California first, you know, San Diego, Orange County, LA have, has continued to be solid. You know, you never saw the huge rent growth that you saw in some other markets, you know, like Phoenix or maybe like the Bay Area you saw in the, you know, and, and you know, coming out of the last recession, there's been kind of solid growth. And for those reasons, and because you haven't had massive job losses, um, you continue to have growth there as well. Um, and again, these, those markets are all supply constrained. So, you know, you're not facing the issues, for example, the Sunbelt is facing now. And I was just looking at some, some numbers yesterday, which shows that a number of major Sunbelt cities are seeing 8, 9, 10% of stock being delivered in the next year or two, which is you know, going to be hugely impactful in those markets on, on terms of you know, negative rent growth, et cetera. 
So I think it's solid. Uh, the Bay Area has been challenging, and you have to break it into different components. You know, San Francisco has really been hit hard. Uh, you know, we have of our 55 or so assets, two that we built south of market in the Bay Area were amongst our strongest performers for a decade. And they're the only two that are just recovering from pre-COVID to, to pre-COVID rents across the portfolio to give you a sense of how hard San Francisco has been hit. We've seen some, you know, continued kind of strength in the, in the East Bay. And then Silicon Valley, there's been strength in certain pockets. There's certain pockets where you've seen some supply come online and, you know, occupancy is tougher and rent growth is, is not as strong as it's been. But you're seeing other pockets where it, it continues to be strong. But it's really kind of a market by market analysis there. You know, Seattle's a very interesting market. It's one that obviously has, you know, seen a lot of tech jobs and, you know, between Amazon and Microsoft and everything else going on up there. But they've added a lot of supply. And they've also been hit hard by work from home policies in the pandemic. So I think Seattle's a challenging market today. We do think it will come back, but it's, you know, today it's, it's difficult to underwrite a new deals there. You know, Denver and Boulder are kind of some of our favorite markets in the country. You have again, a very diverse economy there. You have good job growth. It's the, it's the number two place in the country that millennials say they want to move to. Number one is Austin, Texas. And they go to Austin, they experience the heat, and then they move to, to Denver. So um, it's a really, it's a really dynamic market. And, and uh, we're really happy with the projects that we have built and own there. And, and, and we you know, just you know, signed a contract on a new project we're going to do there. So very, very excited about that. And then, you know, I think Phoenix is a really interesting market. You know, that's very strong on the demand front. Obviously, you've had really good job growth uh, in Phoenix and, you know, a lot of people moving there. You have a number of these major kind of uh, semiconductor and chip factories being built there in the kind of Mesa area. It's a lot of positives. You also saw a ton of capital rush in there in the last couple of years and, and you saw big rent growth. Uh, but you also saw people paying, you know, low threes and high two cap rates. And that's going to be really challenging to sustain because you need, you know, it's one thing when interest rates are zero and you're doing that and you're expecting 10 or 50% rent growth. It's another thing to do when interest rates are eight or nine and, you know, some of those other things have slowed. So, you know, that I think that's going to be a new market for distress, particularly in the value add space. It's also a market that's dealing with climate change issues in a very direct way. And you're seeing restrictions on on water permits, um, which is going to affect new building. So Phoenix is a market we continue to be very actively engaged in, although we were kind of waiting for the other shooter drop there. And then, you know, just, you know, just to take Dallas, for example, like the demand continues to be very strong in Dallas. You've had a lot of people move there. You have a lot of job growth. The barriers to entry aren't as high there, but they're still not zero. Um, you're still only seeing about 3% of the stock being delivered there per year, which is right about equilibrium. So, you know, that's a market that we're, we're spending a lot of time in. We'll probably, we probably think that there is acquisition and value add opportunities there before there's development opportunities. But, but that's one we continue to, to be focused on. It's interesting. The breadth of the markets that you're in, often you see people kind of focus on, you know, either the Sunbelt X California or California X, you know, the Sunbelt and the, the other markets, but you've managed to, to find pockets in, in all of those markets. I believe, you know, you track something like 19 major markets and it's fascinating to, to kind of understand your approach to each of those. We, we see the headlines of, you know, we see the headlines. We, we know through our, our real life experiences that the economy is changing. Interest rates have doubled, tripled, depending on the metric that you're using as the baseline. We are either in a recession or about to go into a recession. Inflation is prevalent. So the headlines are the headlines, but what does that mean as a developer? I haven't had a lot of developers on the podcast. So as a developer with either shovel-ready projects today or projects that are already under construction, given kind of this rapidly changing macro environment, what does that mean for you and your projects? How do you handle it when there's so much uncertainty seemingly on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Um, this is an incredibly you know, volatile and dynamic market right now. Because you, obviously you've had high inflation, which has really increased a, a significant line item in the pro forma budget. Uh, but you also have uncertainty around a recession. I mean, oftentimes when you have 
inflation. It's because things are firing on all cylinders and you're not as worried about a recession. Here you have this kind of very challenging situation where you get hit on both sides. So it does make it very hard to underwrite. You know, we are doing fewer deals today than we've, you know, done, I think, since probably the beginning of the GFC. Doesn't mean we're not underwriting or not. Doesn't mean we're not spending a lot of time, but it's very difficult to make new deals penciled. That being said, there are, you know, there are deals out there. You know, we're actually starting breaking ground next week on a 267 unit ground up development that's right across the street from SpaceX. So a great location in Los Angeles, incredibly supply constrained market. You know, we, you know, we got a good buy on the land. We've, um, we're not building a high rise. We're building a five story project uh, so we can keep construction costs lower. And, you know, that's, that's going to be a, a great deal. Now, again, that's, you know, that, that's a unique one. And they're, again, they're hard to find. On the value add front, you are starting to see deals trade at a pretty significant discount to replacement cost. You know, we're 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 tracking those. You know, we just lost a deal in best and final by two percent, so we're getting closer. But I do think you're going to see that you know that dynamic play out. I think there's a a number of operators who went long in 2020, 2021, 22. And before the market turned with very low interest rates, they highly levered their their projects. They, you know, they put a two-year cap on their variable rate interest rate. Those are starting to expire now. And they're either going to have to, you know, get their investors to put in more capital or they're going to end up giving some projects back to the bank. And so that's going to create an opportunity for investors who know those sub-markets and are tracking those deals and and have capital and are kind of available to to jump in and help, you know, you know, help take that project over. Are you a buyer of distressed value add opportunities at the right price over the next six to 18 months? For sure. Yeah, for sure. And we have, you know, we have dry powder to do that. And we've been saving our dry powder, waiting for the opportunity. I think the name of the game is patience right now. But, you know, we, it's a lot of work because we, we basically track every single deal in every one of our markets that, uh, that is, you know, going to market. So we're underwriting it. We're looking to see if there's an opportunity. And but you've started to see, and I would say in the last six to eight weeks, you're starting to see things trade again. There was a you know six to nine months where things weren't trading at all because nobody knew value. Now you're seeing some some conviction. We think that'll increase over time, and there'll be more distressed opportunities. And again, those those people who know those markets, who have the ability to come in and execute quickly who have the ability, we think vertically integrated so that, you know, you can really underwrite costs in a real way of what needs to be done and what the opportunity is. And, you know, there's going to be, uh, you know, some exciting things that get done. The fundraising environment's also been pretty quiet given the macro, you know, understandably. So from the perspective of a vertically integrated, you know, developer, investment manager, asset manager, how, you know, how are you perceived by the institutional investment community and kind of what should institutional investors or any investor know about investing in a specialist like city view versus you know a more traditional asset manager that you know needs to find a partner to take on the development or the the property management yeah sure so it's so it's interesting we we've been blessed with wonderful institutional investors um, over our 20-year period and many many repeat investors but it's often a challenge, you know, for a firm like ours, because, you know, if, if you're not raising funds that are over a billion dollars, a lot of the major pension systems won't um, kind of won't talk to you because they can't write a big enough check and still stay under their their, you know, concentration limits. Um, the other thing that sometimes will will be a challenge for firms like Cityview is that we do development and value add. And we think that's a competitive advantage. We know it's a competitive advantage because we understand exactly what things cost. We know what class A rents for, what class B rents for. We, and we can often take kind of our class A, you know, practices and bring them to class B projects and give, you know, give those people a kind of a class A experience. So there's lots of advantages. But for a lot of, you know, major institutional investors, they just don't invest in development. They don't understand it. I think they misperceive often the risk and think that it's, it, you know, it, it's much safer uh, to invest in value add, and 
And a value add is obviously you know, a great asset class and has performed well in the last decade, but you also had really significant cap rate compression and value add after the GFC really until, until just last year. And so that drove a lot of value in those assets. And, you know, also value add is much more dependent on leverage to deliver returns than development is. You know, we did an analysis that we recently published showing that the the importance of leverage to value add is about four times as important as, as it is to development because of when the capital goes out and how you put the money out and the development premium, et cetera. So it's going to be an interesting time in the next year or two as I think you're going to see a reckoning with a lot of you know value add firms and I think investors will you know understand that that you know development can be a really good part of the portfolio and you're actually you know getting a better risk adjusted return than than simply putting your money in one of the 300 value add funds or whatever that are that are out there in the marketplace. So if I'm an investor and I have money to allocate to multifamily and I'm interested in development. Have you? What have you observed? Is it typically coming out of a kind of a value add bucket, an opportunistic bucket? Like, where does capital come from? You know, what buckets of capital are investors, you know, pulling money from to invest in either your funds or projects that you bring to market? Yeah. So, so it's interesting. You know, we'll you know, d- different investors and different pension fund consultants categorize things differently. But generally, there seems to be kind of a value-add slash opportunistic bucket. And then there tends to be kind of a core, core plus bucket. And, and the core and core plus bucket has been much bigger over time. Again, there's this, you know, there's a perception there that that wasn't very risky. There's also a perception with a lot of these you know, kind of quote unquote open ended core vehicles that, you know, they were liquid and you could simply, you know, say, hey, I want my investment back. And I think what you've seen in the last year is that that's not, you know, that hasn't actually happened. I mean, they've, they've, too many people have come and asked for their money back and they've created these large queues and they've closed the gate, as they say. And it's not as liquid as some investors thought. So, you know, my guess is coming out of this that pension fund consultants and, academics and institutional investors who are thinking about allocations are going to learn the lessons of this last, you know, this last year and maybe think differently about how they allocate across their portfolio. And do you think that the market is under allocated today to opportunistic or, I mean, how, how do you think about the total availability of capital for the types of projects that you do? Is that a, is that a problem or it's really just a function of accessibility? I, I think it's it's both. I think it's under allocated to to ground up development, uh, and I'm not just talking my book here. I mean, I think that that's why. I mean, you see, LA City it needs 57,000 units a year, right? That money is not going to be funded by, you know, by um, the government. They don't have it. It's going to be funded by the private sector. You know, I think you know we we did it back of the envelope. I think it's something like you know. Depending on your price per unit, you know, $40 billion per year of new housing is going to need to get built just in LA City, not even LA County over the next eight or nine years, just based on demand. So, you know, there's, there's capital out there, but there's not nearly that much capital. So I do think that there needs to be more capital allocated for ground up development. So it's, I don't know, but it's going to be, you know, generally the markets are efficient. And institutional investors are are thoughtful, and they're going to go where the opportunity is. I I think this reckoning that's happening now, and and the lessons from over the last year, is going to affect how investors think about uh, this opportunity going forward. I will say that again, it's it's you know, is there enough opportunistic capital generally out there? Maybe for today there is because there's not a lot of deals to be done because of the dynamics we talked about earlier. But that's going to change. The American economy is very resilient. Again, you continue to have demographic growth. You're gonna, you are gonna grow jobs over time, and there's not enough housing. So, you know, there, there is, you know, there will be deals to be done, and and we think there's going to be quite a few of them as you, as you know, things shake out with the Fed and the economy, and Americans have confidence again and and how to move forward. So, I want to change gears uh, for the last section here and talk a little bit about kind of the intersection of you know city views business and some of the civic 
you know, work that you've done, you know, personally, I know that you most recently, or I believe you most recently rolled off as the chairman of the LA airport commission. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And now you're, I don't remember your exact role, but you're, are you a commissioner of the national airport commission appointed by Biden or what's the official, official title there? Yeah. So, yeah. So Metropolitan Washington Airport Authority, which is the the two national airports, Dulles and, and Reagan National. Um, yeah. So I was, I'm a commissioner there now. I'm on the board of directors and, uh, and I left LAX where I'd been for, for nine years, eight years as the president. And I was sat on the city planning commission here in Los Angeles before that. And so, you know, my, my kind of personal philosophy on that is, is I, look, I started my career working in the Clinton White House when I was 21 years old. I've always had a public service instinct and don't try to do, you know, 10 or 20 things, but try to do one thing at a time and do it well and make sure it's substantive um, and I can move the needle on that. Um, and, you know, the LAX has been a, a great example of that. I was, you know, very fortunate when the mayor asked me to do that in 2013. Uh, uh, mayor Garcetti had just come into office and you know, LAX had not had really significant infrastructure investment in it since they double-decked the airport and built the Tom Bradley Terminal for the 1984 Olympics. And so it was an opportunity to, to come in and, and you know, oversee uh, the, the team that ran one of the biggest infrastructure assets in the world and figure out, you know, how do we make it a better experience for the passengers? And And what we identified was, that, you know, basically, you know, once you get to the curb, the actual experience at LAX is pretty good. The TSA lines are short. They have, that's great. You know, retail inside, it's fast uh, in terms of getting to the, to the planes, like some other major airports. You know, but the real challenge is getting in and out. So we, you know, basically came up with a $15 billion modernization plan to build people mover train to pull, a, you know, the majority of, of the really challenging congestion out of the terminal area, you know, built the largest rental car facility in the world, um, built a new international terminal, modernized eight of the nine terminals that were there. Each one alone would be a kind of a its own kind of mid-sized airport in the country, all while running at significant profit and not using any kind of L.A. city taxpayer dollars. So, it was a great opportunity. And, and, you know, I obviously learned a tremendous amount and I'm trying to, you know, when the president asked me to, to take this role in Washington is to bring some of the, the lessons learned from LAX and to Dulles uh, and to the, you know, to the airport authority there and, and see if we could, you know, you know, continue to improve and modernize as well. So it's been a you know great experience and I'm enjoying the new role and, and I look, I think it benefits City View. You know, we, we, we have a culture and ethic here of, you know, trying to do, doing well by doing good, as, as the famous Jim Rouse used to, to talk about. And part of that is the types of projects that we build and buy in the neighborhoods. And we try to have positive impact on our communities. And we also try to encourage our team up and down the line to, to be involved in a civic or public capacity where we can be helpful. And so, you know, it's very much the ethic of the firm. It's how we were founded. It's you know, it's kind of we are mission driven and trying to do kind of have a positive impact and for for our communities and our renters, but also for our investors. And I think the public service that, that I do and others do here, you know, contributes to that. So I have, you know, a few passions, one of which is real estate, which is where I spend a lot of my time professionally or private markets. The other is travel. We didn't go over this question in advance, but for listeners who have made it this long in the in the podcast, which I'm sure is everybody, because it's been a great conversation. <laughs> indulge us with, still awake? Yeah. Yeah. Indulge us with something about LAX that as a traveler, we may not know or may not appreciate, but kind of went into this, you know, massive infrastructure project. Like what's a, I don't know if a fun fact or just some some nugget, some gem of information that you have that the rest of us may not know. Look, I just, you know, when I when I went on the board there, I didn't appreciate the impact LAX had I'm on the region. You know, it's the largest economic development asset. It supports about 600,000 jobs directly or indirectly in the region. So think about that from an in- impact perspective. And look, in, in 2019, we had 88 million passengers come through. I mean, it's a city of 4 million people. We had 88 million passengers come through. There And then I thought a really interesting fact, a uh, fun fact I learned was really the importance of tourism. The L.A. County Economic Development Corporation did a 
analysis of how important tourism was and basically said for every daily over the ocean flight that you get over the course of a year brings in anywhere from 600 million to a billion dollars to the local economy All right so if you could land a new non-stop to shanghai that that came in once a day for 365 days that would generate about a billion dollars of economic impact in the region so i thought that was eye opening and certainly makes me appreciate the the 50 million passengers that we got in 2019 and that we're building back to you know kind of post covid but you know i thought that was a really interesting fact that is that is that's fascinating i've always wondered how and why airports buy you know airports and airlines buy for routes but obviously the economic impact is a major driver i had no idea that it was at that scale so in our final moments together tell us kind of what is your priority or what are you looking at over the next 6 to 18 months given the backdrop of where we are you know at the helm of city view you know looking to grow and expand where are you spending your time where are you spending your energy what are your priorities as you look out over the kind of call it horizon one the near to medium term yeah like we we think it's it's going to be a really interesting time to grow and develop you know uh, because of the uncertainty coming up you know Warren Buffett has that famous saying about you know until the tide goes out you don't know who's wearing a swimsuit and who doesn't and i think you're going to see that now and if i look at the kind of major inflection points at city view and when we've really you know grown significantly or gone to the next level it's been during the major downturns you know we you know come in 2008 and 9 you know we recapitalized one of our major portfolios we brought in new investors we made the decision to vertically integrate grew significantly and then during covid you know we've we've more than doubled in size since covid started because there were you know opportunities so we think the next you know kind of 12 to 24 months is going to be that sort of growth opportunity the challenging part is you want to be patient you know you don't want to catch a falling knife as they say and you don't want to jump too early so we're being very patient with our capital very picky you know kissing a lot of frogs as they say but at some point you know we'll t- return the spigot on and and really take advantage of the opportunities that are out there. So that's what we're focused on and we're you know we've been you know back in the office for a year and a half full time and I look down the corridor here I see everybody out there working on new deals and working on managing the assets we have so we're excited about the future. That's awesome. Well, Sean, I just want to thank you. It's been a a fascinating and insightful conversation. I appreciate you joining me today and uh, best of luck going forward. Great, Brandon. Thank you very much for having me on. This has been great. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Distribution by Juniper Square. If you liked today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend, and don't forget to subscribe and rate the Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash b sedloff, or you can find me on Twitter at b sedloff. You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at junipersquare.com forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time. Music.